Why are some of us more prone to anger than others? How might experiences from early childhood shape the way we express our feelings? Today, we talk with Brad Smallwood, licensed marriage and family therapist, about how the stories we tell ourselves can cause us to lose control of our emotions and actions. In addition, we will look at whether or not anger is a primary or secondary emotion. That is, is anger actually useful or is it simply a conduit for expressing underlying fear and sadness? Also, what are some skills we can employ to mitigate hurt feelings? Brad recommends everything from splashing cold water on our face, taking a run around the block, to even washing the dishes. More importantly, increasing self-care appears to be a veritable panacea for angry outbursts, especially those that arise when we are burnt out. Finally, we will also examine domestic violence. We will discuss boundary setting, safety plans, and treatment for both victims and perpetrators of DV. My name is Benjamin Russick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast, Look, Just Tell Me What to Do. How do you know when somebody has an anger management problem? Let's start with everybody gets angry, so that's normal. But when your anger starts to cause distress and disability in your life, that's when you have an anger management problem. And distress and disability means it's negatively affecting your relationships, you might lose your job, you might end up with some lawsuits on your hands. That's when you know you have an anger management problem. Like what might they do? What do we see? People where they've thrown things around their house, they're yelling at other people, using really threatening language, placing their hands on other people. This is both at the home and at the workplace. And just to be clear, this applies to both men and women equally. Yes. Can you say a little bit about that? Because I think there's a perception that it's only a male problem. I see both men and women. Overwhelmingly, I have I get male referrals. I see mm-hmm. quite a few females. In terms of the way that anger shows up and shows that distress in someone's life, I would say it impacts men and women equally. But the idea that men are angrier than women is a total fallacy. I guess the idea is that when men have an anger issue, it can become more threatening. They're bigger and stronger generally. And That's fair. They can destroy things. And so you get more court-ordered stuff involving anger issues with men, I would yeah. imagine. Yeah, that's and, absolutely fair. And also, I feel like there's a cultural bias that if a man has an anger problem, he's dangerous, a problem that needs to be fixed immediately. Is that true? Like say that the police show up at someone's house for a domestic violence dispute. Typically, if there's any type of physical interaction or any physical altercation, uh-huh. the men is kind of viewed as like the aggressor. They will, sure. they will take him out of the house. He will be the one arrested. Something that happens at work, say it's a, it's a team of multiple people working on a project, more than anything else, it's a misunderstanding. But the way that this person interpreted the event, they fly into such a rage, they're screaming at the top of their lungs, they're cussing, they're weaponizing their words, they're being physically threatening, like their posture, getting aggressively into someone's face. In the workplace, you get in a lot of trouble for that. Let's go into what anger management is. Anger management is being able to more effectively control an emotion that causes you problems. It doesn't mean anger curing. I've had people say, hey, can I just not be angry ever again? (laughs) Awesome. I wish that was the same for myself. Anger is an emotion, just like any other emotion. And it serves an important function sometimes. But when it crosses over into rage, that's when it shows up very problematically in our lives. Sometimes it can even be helpful to convey anger effectively towards something that we're upset with. I hear conflicting things about this from different therapists. People say that anger is a secondary emotion that hides fear and sadness. And I think that's bullshit. I think anger is a primary emotion that enables you to get something done in a hurry, no matter what. I think that the opinion you've heard from other therapists is my own, because I I do believe that anger is a secondary emotion. All right. We disagree. (laughs) We can debate. Let's debate. Um, But what you said, I think, is really important as well. 
I really do think that anger is something that sits on top of anxiety mm -hmm. and sadness. Mm -hmm. I, I really do believe that. But what you said was really important too. Very oftentimes, anger is our inability to solve a problem with our rationale. Mm -hmm. So we'll try and speed through something. It's almost the impatience with the situation that will react very quickly and very violently as a way of kind of expediting ourselves through that process. Right. I come from a, a funny school. So my therapist, Seymour Radin, was uh, raised in the Great Depression. Quite literally has had uh, his hands were all messed up and gnarled because he got into so many fistfights in the streets. Like it was the real thing. And for him, anger was a tool to survive. There was lots of street gangs. There was lots of theft. There was lots of just, it was insane. Sanity. You had to tap into that direct energy source to either fight your way out of a situation, make a demand. People were a lot more, from what he told me, a lot more cutthroat and kind of bullying and brutal when it came to dealings with money and stuff like that. And you had to really just be, you know, bam. And for him, anger and, and even violence were part of life and a necessary tool. Not, not the primary tool, but a tool that was in the box and needed to be used in an appropriate way. Yeah, that makes complete sense. I mean, there's a utility to anger sometimes. I mean, mm -hmm. very oftentimes when we talk about anxiety, you'll have people come in and say, hey, I don't want to be anxious. And you go, well, there's actually a utility to being anxious. It serves a function. It sounds like Seymour, had they not used that anger, Mm -hmm. they would have been taken advantage of. They mm -hmm. could have been really harmed. But now, hormonally, like say if we were to go into brain chemistry, when we start secreting like cortisol and stress hormone, our body's being pumped with like fight or flight hormone. That's in our body for a reason. But what happens now, like say this is in the workplace or even in the home, mm -hmm. it's the mistake of confusing then and now. And that actual right. danger isn't present. It's like we are having a difficult conversation, but you're responding in a way, we are flying into a rage to protect yourself like there's actual danger yeah. Not missing the deadline or a misunderstanding on a project. And I don't mean to say, Brad, you're wrong about what you say. But in this day and age, anger is not as useful. Everything is so carefully put together. You know, there's lawsuits and there's liabilities and there's all these things. And the main thing I got from Seymour was that he would always tell him, why don't you just tell that person to go F themselves or whatever? And it's like, <laughs> Seymour, I, I can't do that. He would make regularly make suggestions that would have landed me in jail. And, and he didn't have an understanding that you can't, you can't just grab someone by the collar and say, what the fuck are you doing? You just sure. can't do that anymore. Yeah. So I feel like in our culture these days, anger has been pathologized to a point that is shocking to me. That it, when somebody gets angry, it's like there's something terribly wrong with that person. So that's just my, my little thing. I, I wonder if there's been a cultural shift on anger and the way we perceive it, but I don't know. There's still plenty of reasons to get angry and to be upset. When it becomes a real problem in someone's life, again, is when they start to face consequences for their anger and their rage. Another therapist that I've worked with for a really long time, the way that he describes anger, and I don't know if I necessarily agree with this entirely, is it's like adult crying. You know, when a five-year-old, say they're, they're playing with their truck and you take their truck away from them, they don't have the emotional resources to say, hey, I'd really like it if you gave me my truck back. Like that was really important, my playtime, and I need that. Instead, what they're going to do is they are going to fall on the ground and slam their hands and feet on the ground and be like, I want my truck. Back. <laughs> you know, they're going to lose. They're going to lose their shit. They're going to lose their <laughs> shit. Okay. And adults are the same way when they cross into that rage. Is there anything else you want to say about what is anger management? People ask the question, is it uh, nature versus nurture? Some people will say, hey, I think I was born angry. 
I think that every single culture attributes their culture to being angry. Me being Irish, you'll hear people say like, oh, I'm Irish, I'm angry, or I'm, I'm this, I'm angry. That's complete crap. I think it's nurture. I think it's the way that you've been raised. It's the mm -hmm. messages you've gotten from the world. Mm -hmm. Every now and then you'll have someone that experiences anger due to a medical condition. I've worked with people that have had strokes and that's really negatively impacted their ability to regulate their emotion. That's entirely different. And that's, that's not necessarily nature or nurture. Sometimes even people are put on like a medication that changes their brain chemistry and it will make them more prone to rage. I've had a couple examples of people that have had head injuries and it really negatively impacts their impulse control. When you're working with that type of anger management, that's when you're really working on skills-based situational awareness and they need to be under some other type of medical care. Typically the anger management that I see are people like you and me, Ben. Just everyday people, something's going on in their life that's not working out for them. But what do you think makes one person more prone to having an anger management problem than another? I mean, you, know, you said nurture, but what in that specifically do you think does it? What moves it about? Mm. A theory that I've had that I feel pretty confident in is when you've seen anger used and someone gets a secondary gain, you see an advantage to it. Okay, like what? Well, if you've seen your dad when you were younger and you saw the way your dad interacted with people in the neighborhood, say it was over some dispute and your dad kind of got in someone's face and they backed down and your dad got his way. Somewhere in your brain, you learn that, that that works. To posture over someone, that person will back off. I think that is a really strong message for someone to take in as a young person. They'll say, oh, there, there's an advantage to this. Like, this will do something for me. There's like a, a slow build. You start to see the advantages and you just sort of, you get into a flow of a certain pattern early on in your life. Say you're a kid and you're pushing people around in the schoolyard. Or maybe you saw, you know, dad beat up mom. Yeah. Not just the fact that you saw dad bullying people and getting an advantage, but that as a form of communication, that's what you're used to seeing. In your universe, when you're a child, when someone does something I don't like, I'm going to move into the only way of communicating that I know of. Suddenly, it's like, oh, that worked really, really well. And the idea of suggesting to someone they not do that would be baffling. Well, well then how am I going to get anything done? I have this question on my intake. How was anger expressed in your home, your uh -huh. community, your uh -huh. school? Overwhelmingly, when people are coming to me with a problem, they've seen anger played out in their life time and time again. Interesting. This is just a technique I kind of in invented. Well, I didn't invent it. I think I've reimagined re, uh, re it. I'm sure someone else has said this. When I get really, really angry couples, I say, look, the next time you see your partner doing something you don't like, just stop. <laughs> just, just stop and take a breath and count to 10 and do something different than what you thought you were going to do. Like whatever your first reaction was, they talk about that, like, like first thought, worst thought, and, and just put it away and do the different thing. Is that anger management? Yeah. One of the easiest, most basic skills that I try and teach people right away, especially when things get heated, is when they start to experience the initial signs that they're getting angry, one of the things I say right away is like, when you recognize those things, it is time to start taking care of yourself and the other person. And that means removing yourself from the situation. That means going to like wash your hands with cold water, take a 10 minute walk around the block, remove yourself from the stimulus. I heard one of the world's foremost safety and security experts, this guy, Gavin DeBecker, said this. If you are caught up in anger for more than a couple minutes, you're more caught up in the story of why you should be angry rather than the actual event than itself. Interesting. Can you give an example? An example of being angry only for a couple of moments. I've had people come to me and say, my, my significant other did this to me. Then we start arguing and then I all of a sudden I'm yelling, I'm, I'm, I'm shoving this person. And the event itself is stupid. It's not worth arguing over. It's over taking out the trash or something mundane like that. But what they're responding to is being made to feel small. 
And that's when someone's caught up in the story of why they should be angry. Their narrative. Because they've, their narrative is like, I am small, I am weak, let me show you that I'm not. I see. And when it's over taking out the trash, not worth it. Do you think that harkens back to a childhood thing? I don't mean to stem everything to childhood, but let's say wife tells husband to, hey, take out the trash. And she says it in kind of a, a short way that he doesn't like, or that resonates with, you know, when he was much younger and his mother or his father were demeaning to him and he felt small. And then that triggers the story. Do you think it's something like that deep or do you think it can be something more general? It can be adverse experiences. It could be from a previous partner. It okay. can certainly be from childhood. And we're almost talking about a traumatic reaction here. And it's mistaking the then and the now. You know, when it's something as mundane as like taking out the trash. Trash is mundane. It's easy. But when someone responds really strongly, they're working out something else. Right. They're not working out the trash going to a receptacle in the garage. Someone has a story in their head about feeling like they're less than everyone else. So when someone in any way steps into that wound and triggers them, they're off to the races. In trauma work, when you kind of fall back into that story, say you have like a traumatic reaction, the way that I've been taught and the way that I explain to people is called it, the rider is falling off the horse. The analogy there is the brain is two things. The more kind of primal, older part of our brain would be the horse. The prefrontal cortex in our brain, like the front part with all the, the reasoning, the, that is the rider. The horse is much stronger than the rider. When we're just cruising down the street and nothing's happening, the rider is just kind of going atop. He is riding atop the horse. <laughs> and when someone's triggered, the rider falls off the horse. And so all of a sudden, when the rider's off the horse, the horse is this angry, safety-seeking part of the brain. That's when you get people acting out in a total rage. They are completely devoid of any type of rational behavior. The goal, when the rider falls off the horse, is getting the rider back on the horse. That is the number one step. That's a fantastic analogy. I've had some frightening experiences with anger issues in my office and also working inpatient rehab. People getting up in my face, screaming and yelling, couples raging, yelling, screaming, so angry that they couldn't, like the horse was, was out and there was just, there was no calming them down and calming <laughs> them down just pissed them off more. Sure. So everything you threw at them was a form of energy and it just made it bigger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't like it, but you like it. I love working in anger management. I why, love it. Why do you like that, Brad? And what's wrong with you that you do? I, I relate to anger. I'm not the therapist that you go to and I'm like thumb rings and robes and like, hey, let's just calm down. I'm, I'm not that way. Like I, I get pissed off just like everybody else. Mm -hmm. One thing I really like about anger management is the people. People are really motivated to change. Very oftentimes people come in and like they have lost a job or at risk of losing a job. Mm -hmm. Their relationships could be on the rocks. They're losing friends. I mean, we're talking about the things that are really basic to our overall well-being, like our ability to maintain positive relationships, be with our significant other, our work. One of my no-nos when someone calls me for anger management, if a significant other calls on behalf of the person, I know that that's not going to work out. If they call me and say, hey, my significant other, like my husband or my boyfriend or my wife, they're angry and they need to come to see you. I'd like to set up an appointment for them. I've seen that work out. I can name one person <laughs> where I've continued to work with them and they've had positive outcomes. Ultimately, I think the reason for that is the person needs to come up with their own internal motivation for why they should be entering counseling for anger. I can also speak to that. I'm working in chemical dependency. And nobody gets better if their mom or their brother or whomever sends them into treatment. Mm -hmm. It never works. And there's nothing more fascinating than working with somebody who has really lost a lot 
as a result of their chemical dependency issue. And it's just like, just tell me, just tell me what to do. And that really is the origin of the name of this podcast is because in that field, I really do get to tell people do this and this and this and do it this way. Okay, I'll do it that way. And then poof, they're not using chemicals anymore. It's amazing how much better people's lives can be when they actually make slight changes. Sometimes not groundbreaking changes, but just incorporating a few of the skills that they're learning and they incorporate them into their lives. Their lives get better. What kind of changes do you see? What does it look like? It's helping people move from a reactive place to a reflective place. That's one of the major changes I see in working with anger management. What does a reflective moment look like as opposed to an angry moment? When a situation that would normally cause you to fly into a rage, tell, tell your boss to F off or slam something on the table at home, rather than doing that, you cope a little bit, take a couple deep breaths, and you address the situation from a place of the rational mind as opposed to this reactive mind. You might respond to that in a way where you say, hey, that's not okay. Or, hey, give me a few minutes. Let me think through that. I'm going to come back. We'll talk about it then. It's going from a place of responding almost primally in a really hurt, rageful way, not coming back and being like, well, I'm just this like really reflective person, but like, hey, what happened there? That's not okay between us. But like, hey, let's, let's continue to work through this. You kind of advocate for to sort of speak your truth and say, oh, what you said really upset me. I'm experiencing these feelings right now. I'm not really sure what to do with them, but I need you to know that this is where I'm at. And that's reflection. Yeah, absolutely. So is there anything else besides the palpable, measurable progress you see your patients making in that area that draws you to the field? Is there anything uh, less uh, concrete? Here's a little secret I'll tell about anger management. I think it is a secret backdoor for men to enter therapy. Oh, say more. All right, guys, here the secret's out. The idea of men entering therapy is kind of stigmatized. However, what if you were to tell your friends, I'm going to talk to this guy about anger management? I tell people this all the time. I say, you might think when you come into my office that you think you're going to be an angry person, but you're going to find out that you're anxious and possibly depressed. It's interesting, isn't it? It's like a rebranding. In the beginning, it's like, we're doing anger management. Let's work on cognitive behavioral therapy type skills. And then they stick around and they want to talk. Yeah. They want to talk through things. <laughs> like they hang out. And you're like, look, I thought this was supposed to be a few That's sessions hilarious. where we like, something happens, we talk about this, and then you're good. And then if we need to revisit, we do. But they come around and all of a sudden you're like, hey, hang on, hey, what? We're just, this is, this is traditional therapy, like not, not worksheets and stuff like that. Can I tell you a story? Sure. This couple went to see my therapist and uh, the guy clearly was an angry dude. And uh, she spoke for a while and talked about, you know, how lame their marriage was and everything. And finally Seymour said, okay, and let's listen to the other guy. The guy says, I'm here under coercion. I don't believe in therapy. Y'all are quacks and I don't want to spend my money on this. You know, I've been, I think he made some slur. Like I've been giving money to Jews my whole life and you're a Jew and now I got to do this. And Seymour said, all right, listen, let's just stay for the hour. And if you don't like it, you have to pay me. Okay. Uh -huh. The guy says, all right. So the hour proceeds, lots of opening up. They both cry. They both share lots of warm feelings. There's clearly progress. Mm -hmm. At the end of the thing, um, Seymour says to the guy, so do you want to schedule another appointment? The guy says, appointment? I told you, therapy is bullshit. You all are quacks. I don't want to give you my money. I'm here under coercion. You know, my wife is threatening to divorce me. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to do this. Seymour thinks for a second and says, so um, what did you think of the hour? The guy says, oh, hour was great. Seymour says, I'll tell you what, we will not do any therapy. We'll just do more hours like this one. Oh, yeah. And the guy... <laughs> 
Disarming, man. And the That's guy, so cool. And the guy says, great, and writes him a check for the next six appointments. That's so cool. That's Yeah, I love stuff like that. Let's talk about men's issues. So right. when a man comes into therapy, what is he at first worried about? Where his, what walls are up and what do you see crumbling? What do you see happening? As a culture, I don't think that we're taught to be vulnerable as men. Brene Brown, she's got like four signs of how men are supposed to be. I'll probably butcher this, but it's like men are supposed to be stoic, violent, primarily focus on your work. And so when men are coming in, there's like the suspicion of like, if I were to open up, like I'm going to be perceived as weak. And that's total shit right there. I think that's stupid. I think some of the most powerful moments I've had with people is like even over a laugh when they realize that their walls are up just like everybody else. And you start to slowly kind of erode those things and they realize that what they're experiencing is very consistent with the rest of the world. It starts to reduce their own self-isolation they're having around a problem. And they get to actually look at the problem from a different angle, even look at the problem with humor rather than like, I've got to stay buttoned up. I need to appear strong. I, I got to be willing to fight. That stuff doesn't work out for people. But when people start to, you know, talk through things like what it's like to be afraid as a male in the workforce or imposter syndrome or their fear of raising their kids to look like to look like a capable parent or just even appearing capable in front of their significant other or their in-laws or mm -hmm. their own family. That's a lot. To bring those things into the open air and talk about those things objectively, it's like you can watch people's body posture go from like ready to fight ape to like laid back surfer on the couch. Because they've never talked about it before. Never talked about it. Isn't that amazing? I ask people this all the time. I'm like, have you ever talked about something like this before? I never have. How does it feel? Oh, it feels really good to talk about this. Why do you suppose it feels good for people to talk about things? It's cathartic. I don't know. Isn't that I, weird? Just, it feels good to talk about things. You realize the stuff isn't that scary once you get it out. That everybody thinks that their story is so unique. Yeah. It's unique to them because yeah. they've never talked about it with anybody when they go have you ever heard of something like this and you go yeah my two o'clock appointment my 11 o'clock appointment probably my four and five o'clock appointment i talk about this all day man yeah <laughs> this is live and well here in the city and like surprise surprise everywhere have you ever heard of the uh, gospel of thomas no it's one of the apocryphal texts of the bible it was left out and there's a statement in there purportedly by Jesus that goes, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will be your salvation. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. That's amazing. That's like 2000 years old. They cut that out? Yeah, it's assholes. <laughs> like, why would you, that's so cool. Didn't make the chopping block. Didn't, it did. <laughs> They were doing they were doing the equivalent of podcasting back then. They were just ripping the page out of the book. They're like, oh, sorry. No, this yeah. It's not gonna make it. Mm -hmm. I had a really positive experience with a therapist when I was like 28 years old. Mm -hmm. You know, I was deciding to move up here and he wasn't doing interventions. We were just talking and we were just bringing stuff out of the open and it allowed me to make decisions for myself. So I know we spoke about skills earlier, but let's really get into it. Talked about putting the rider back on the horse. You talked about splashing cold water on your face or something mm -hmm. like that, or drinking a glass of cold water, or leaving the room, all that stuff. So one of the things that I use is something called the anger control cycle. And that's identifying emotions as they come up. Like there's going to be an event and a response to an event. The event is an external trigger. That is something some, somebody or something is doing to you. The internal trigger is your emotional response to that event, the way that you interpret it and the way that you react. Following that is usually physical cues that you're getting angry. When you can recognize those things, I'm being triggered into anger. Here's my physical cues reminding me that I'm gearing up for... Like what kind of physical cues? Sweating, feet tapping, maybe start saying some bad words bobbing your head away, like when you start to get your physical cues, that's the time when it starts to, to remove yourself from the stimuli. If you can't remove yourself completely, that's employing coping skills such as deep breathing, 
positive imagery sometimes, sometimes making light of the situation. But more than anything, in the very beginning, I think it's those first critical couple of seconds to even minute where you can go from a time where it's like someone's doing something or something has happened to you that is really inviting you to become angry, not making you angry, but inviting you to be really angry. That's when you need to employ your skills. Before you can address the situation at hand, you need to first take care of yourself so you don't go nuclear and blow the event up. So what do they do in those first few seconds? Start taking a couple of breaths. Again, like I said, if you can remove yourself from the situation, get some fresh air. I told people to go wash the dishes. There's something about the mind-body experience of like warm soap over your hands and you know doing something that's actually a positive activity. I think the walk around the block is really effective. Getting up and leaving a meeting, just saying, hey, I need to excuse myself. To get cortisol out of your body. So cortisol? Cortisol is a fight or flight hormone. It's fight or flight juice. It helps us either run away or fight. It makes the horse go. It's Red Bull for the horse. Okay. So stepping out of the meeting, getting anything to get the cortisol juice out, cold water on the face, mm -hmm. music, dancing, push-ups. Every now and then you'll hear someone say like, I go hit a punching bag, but all that does is reinforce you to use your fists when you're angry. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Everybody says, well, you punch a pillow and you get your anger out. It's like, no, what you're doing is you're training your brain when you get angry to go punch something. What if your pillow or your punching bag's not there? It's going to be your boss. Uh-huh. Wow. That's a piece of wisdom there, Brad. Bang, bang. That. Thank you. No worries, man. You Isn't just, that a good one though? You just saved me a lawsuit. Yeah. As much as the word mindfulness has been co-opted, mindfulness is really helpful because when you're using mindfulness, you can think about like, okay, what's really going on here? What is mindfulness? The way that I understand mindfulness is in a sea of emotions. It is being able to correctly identify the emotions you're experiencing and being able to utilize that emotion. That's mindfulness, to me yeah. at least. My understanding of mindfulness is to be fully in the present, saying this is where I'm at, this is what I'm feeling, this is what's going on, my heart's beating very quickly, oh, I'm breathing, my sh I'm short of breath. Yes. And this is what I'm going to do right now to address these issues. Yes. That's a great definition. That's why I hate the term mindfulness, because it's it means so much to so many different people. Yeah. So I'm sure there's people going like, no, mindfulness means this. Well, it's in vogue right now. And everyone's using it, and I don't ever use it with my patients. Yeah, I just I. said I just give them the specific thing, but because it's a buzzword, I'm putting it in this damn podcast. It's a buzzword. It's a it total is. buzzword. It's right up there with authenticity. And triggered. Triggered. Uh, <laughs> vulnerability. <laughs> so that being said, those moments of being in the present and recognizing what you're responding to. You know, when you can say, hey, this isn't so much about the parking ticket that I got, but this is about like how stressed I am about my finances or this boss telling me that this PowerPoint doesn't look good. This isn't about the PowerPoint looking good, but what I'm responding to is the fear of my job and my job stability. One thing I talk about with anger management is there's, there's plenty of opportunities to practice. If I have an hour and say I go to like one of the coffee shops down the street, I just order and they're like, what's your name? I'm like, I'm Brad. And I say, ah, oh, you know, take your time. You know, there's a lot of people in here. I'll let people go ahead of me. But if I've got 15 minutes before my appointment, you know, if anyone even shuffles, like they're going to cut me in line, all of a sudden it's like I start twitching. Mm -hmm. And like, that's one of those things where it's like, I'm just not being very reflective in that moment. I'm, yeah. you know, like I'm like, I experience that a lot, like at the grocery store when I can tell someone's about to cut me off. And I think, is there more value in me telling this idiot that he's cutting me off or me just letting him cut me off? There's a lot of really good activities. They say, hey, someone cut me off on the Bay Bridge or someone used the carpool lane and they, they weren't supposed to. What I tell people is like, how about you let them do their thing? And in 10 minutes, 
you can get as angry as you want at the situation. <laughs> when I tell people like when it's traffic, it's like none of that stuff matters. You don't know that person. What do you have to gain by catching up to them, flipping them off, making eye contact? Nothing. All you have is things to lose. And if you let them just you know slow down, don't try to catch up with them, just sit back. 10 minutes later, try and revisit those same emotions. That person is out of your life. Melissa Stevenson, did you ever meet her? She was the, my boss before Christine Pappas at Foundations. Anyway, when she would hire people and I would sit in these interviews, she would always ask them how they handled themselves in traffic. Oh, nice. That was an interview question. She's so smart. <laughs> that's a great that that's a great question. We didn't touch on self-care. Again, what a greatly co-opted word by the mental health community. Those words. Self-care. Oh man. Well, they should just change it to things that are good for you. Things that are good for you. <laughs> but overwhelmingly, when I talk to people that are constantly finding themselves in situations that that lead into rage. They're not taking good care of themselves. Basic self-care, that means sleeping, exercising, eating well, staying away from drugs and alcohol, maintaining good relationships. Self-care is like it's macro for what you should be doing in your life. What I find when people most need to be taking care of themselves, they're neglecting themselves. Sometimes you say, well, you should be exercising and doing this. And they just go, well, who's got time for that? And it's just like, you got to take care of yourself. When the rider falls off the horse, things are no longer a challenge. They're a threat. One of my old bosses, Krista Gilbert, she said, if you don't sit down with the pain, the pain will sit you down. Yeah, 100%. My sign off is if you have too much on your plate, you can either take things off or you can get a bigger plate. And I think self-care, forgive the use of the term, is a way of getting a bigger plate. So you've written here, learning to name and address emotions in the moment is critical. We have spoken to that before mm -hmm. in this podcast. Did you want to add something to it? I really believe this little one-liner is great. If you can name it, you can tame it. Oh, yeah. That's cute. So when someone can recognize when they're getting really upset or they're get, becoming elevated, rather than just being like, well, I'm angry, I'm in a rage, when they go, you know what? That person cut me off or that person made me feel inferior or right now I'm just really anxious. When you can name that rationally, you can begin the process of coping and taking care of yourself. It's almost as what you reveal, you heal. Yeah. Who is that from? Jay-Z. Jay-Z. Yeah, that's so good. So you can name it, you can tame it. If you can reveal, you heal. Yep. Yeah, that's so good. <laughs> so we're going to move to domestic violence. You have here, you know, trauma, abuse mm -hmm. as a child, never taught to convey emotions, that kind of stuff. So I wanted to look at domestic violence because I feel like it seems to speak to the source better. There's something more primal about it that you can almost see the, the pain in the person. This is not to excuse domestic violence, but it seems to me it's... It's like a deeper look into a human being. One, one thing that I really find with domestic violence is that the harming that's happening in a violent situation in a house, it's always someone that the person loves. There's all these other people in your life that you treat so well that mean nothing to you. But the people that end up getting hurt the most are the ones that are the safest to you. So you can be the most seen by that person, mm -hmm. even if that's, you know, like, say, yeah. like placing your hands on them. So that is a much deeper look into a human. How do you define domestic violence? Oh man, good question. I don't even have domestic violence solely as someone hitting somebody. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I think it's breaking objects. It's making the place physically and or psychologically unsafe. So there can actually be no violent, no physical movement and you can think of it as DV? Mm, I don't think the police would show up and arrest someone for screaming at the top of their lungs, but the way that someone's made to feel terrified, that would certainly be an act of violence. Like threats. Threats, oh yeah. Let's say if a partner says, if you don't do this, I'm going to go out and blow my head off. Oh God, that's really difficult to work with. That, that happens. That, um, mm -hmm. oh God. <sighs> Shit, I don't know how to answer that. Okay. Well, 
when someone says, if you do this, I'm going to go out and blow my head off. Mm -hmm. That's typically when I have that person call the police. Okay. And by the way, so let's talk about some practical domestic violence things. Okay. If someone's hitting you in the home, mm -hmm. you should not be hit in your home. Yes. You should call the police or you should leave your home until it is safe to return to the home. When other people have asked me, because very oftentimes I work with perpetrators of domestic violence and they go, how do you do that? Right. And I say, my people are thoughtful, they're reflective, but they're wounded. They're traumatized and they're hurt to cast them away and say, oh, you can't work with them. But when a home is unsafe, you need to take care of yourself to be a martyr and to, to get beat up and do that and to suffer silently. Mm -hmm. That's not going to work. There's just going to be a re-experiencing of these traumas over and over again. I suppose you work with people with victims of DV as well. Yeah. And do you create safety plans and all yes, that? Yes, big time. And can you talk about that? Sometimes we write them down. So it's identifying key supports in your community, friends, family, who you can stay with. If you don't have a car, if you don't have a phone, mm -hmm. where to go. Mm -hmm. I've even planned with people for going to DV women's shelters. And sometimes to save up money, have a separate yeah. bank account. I work with somebody as a function of their own safety. They keep a bank account. Their significant other knows about it, but they use that as kind of like their safety net, just as kind of like an oh shit parachute. Safety plans are for both the perpetrator and the victim. Oh, when I talk about like a perpetrator, when they start getting angry, typically that means the coping skills. And oh. sometimes that means, yeah, going to stay the night at a friend's house. That's a safety plan. Or I getting a hotel. Yeah, yeah. Oh, big time. The cycle of violence they, they talk about, there's usually a violent act and then there's a honeymoon period after that. They bring them flowers and gifts and all these things mm -hmm. and everything's honky-dory. And then there's a period of rising tension and then the violence happens again. And that what happens is the person who's getting hurt begins to associate the violence with love in a way. Yeah. Victims of domestic violence are oftentimes people that have come from homes where they were hit as kids. So the idea of like a perpetrator has been traumatized. Very oftentimes the victim has been traumatized too. So there's this cycle that gets constantly reenacted. There's almost a need being met on both sides. What do you think causes someone to become a violent person? I think it's nurture. Something that causes someone to be violent, sometimes just people's emotional resources or emotional abilities are so compromised, whether it's stress, lack of sleep, substance abuse, they'll commit those type of things. Very oftentimes, they're, they're almost their traumatic or post-traumatic reactions. I don't experience people as malicious or harmful. I experience people as typically traumatized or working something else that's happened to them. Can you give an example of a trauma that might lead someone to become too default to violence? Someone that was constantly hit when they were a kid, responding violently, it goes back to that whole thing of like, you've seen a secondary gain or a gain where it's going to get you out of trouble. Very oftentimes we're either trying to get something or we're trying to avoid something. And with domestic violence, something that's causing someone to be violent is really that person, they've lost the ability in that moment to use the emotional resources to deal with that situation effectively. And it's almost as if when the rider's off the horse, they're so scrambling to become safe that they'll do something to get themselves to safety. Mm -hmm. It's just the wrong move. Think about like a traumatized dog. Yeah. I don't like to do the animal and human things. No, but that makes a lot of but sense. But a dog from the pound, like my dog, Lenny. Mm -hmm. Hi, Lenny. My Wolf. dog, Lenny. He's reflective 99.9% .9 of the time. But there's something about little kids when they sneak up on him and they grab his tail because they think he's a cute little bear. Mm -hmm. Lenny all of a sudden becomes the pound dog that was in the pound 11 years ago. And he snaps and barks and he becomes this very violent looking wolf. And he's not. He's the sweetest dog in the world. Right. But something's getting enacted there. And Lenny's a dog, so he doesn't have a prefrontal cortex that we know of. So he doesn't have the rationale to be like, okay, you know, he's, he's being a dog. But you see that with humans. When there's the divorce of like the rational brain and the emotional brain, 
that's when you engage in animalistic behaviors like like rage and striking out to be safe. I think we covered, this is a difficult subject to talk about, isn't it? It is. It's really tough because the way that anger and domestic violence shows up is different for everybody. One thing that I was going to say is like, the way that I understand anger is from a lot of different training and a lot of experience. And so I think some of the things I say are pretty consistent with a lot of people that work in anger management. Mm -hmm. But I certainly know that there's other ways that uh, other therapists deal with anger management. But I, I find the way that I do it is very like here and now, skills-based. And then we also have the opportunity to work on a lot of really kind of reflective growth style work. There is no cure for anger. There's just better ways to coexist with it. Okay. That's the way that I kind of look at it. I look at it as like anger serves a utility. I get angry, you get angry. It's just how, how we use it is what makes the biggest difference. All right, Brad. Well, that was really fascinating and I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, man. And I look forward to our next one. Yeah, man. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening. As always, Pertinent information stemming from this podcast, including links and other resources, are available in the episode notes. Should you have any questions, feedback, or wish to be a guest on my podcast, I can be reached at benjaminrusick at gmail.com. That's B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N-R-U-S-S-A-C-K at gmail.com. You can also reach me by visiting my website at benjaminrusick.com. In addition, I encourage you to subscribe, like, leave comments, and all the rest. Thanks again, and remember, if your plate is full, sometimes you need to scrape a few things off to the side, and sometimes you just need a bigger plate.